0: The book of Psalms is the center of the treasury that is God's word. God's word is more than just a book. It's a library. And yet, perhaps for some of us, a library has too academic um, a feel to it. How about treasury? Everything in the pages of scripture is a treasure. In fact, as the Psalms tell us, God's words are more precious than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. It's central in the Bible, because when you flip open the Bible, if you open it to the middle, you'll probably land in Psalms. But it was also central in the thinking and the feeling of Jews and Christians in the first century. We know that because this is the book that they quoted from the most. The Dead Sea Scrolls quote from the Psalms more than any other book of Scripture. Of course, those are written by Jews. The New Testament, written by Christians, Quotes from many Old Testament books, but number one is Psalms. I realized a long time ago I had some learning to do. I was uh, coming up on ten years as a Christian. I, I knew, as you probably know, uh, there's some parts of God's Word you're more familiar with than others. Uh, there may be parts of the Old Testament that are still quite um, uh, abstract or, or arcane. There may be New Testament passages you know well and others that just confuse you. We're honest. None of us has an even knowledge of all the scripture. We have uh, strong and weak areas. And I knew I had work to do. And so I told a friend, this was 25 years ago, I told him I was going to try to get serious about knowing the psalms. Uh, I wanted to be able to know what was in each psalm, you know, the idea in each psalm. And he commended me. He was a scripture Scholar himself, great guy. But I tell you, I underestimated the task. At the end of the year, I had made only slight progress. They're just simply too many psalms. Their themes aren't always obvious. Sometimes they even feel chaotic. Apparently, they weren't written by engineers. I'm wired more that way. Uh, emotional connection is hard for me. I don't always appreciate feelings, or inconsistency, or ambiguity, or or pick up on nuances. We're all different, but perhaps in tackling Psalms, I was really uh, trying to uh, improve a very weak area in my heart. But but without help, I, I needed help. I needed time. I needed time to grow as a Christian. Fast forward to late 2011. Well. By this point, I had read the psalms quite a few times. In fact, uh, I had read them over 50 times. And then I took a suggestion from a friend, uh, Randy Harris, uh, author of Soul Work. He's also a philosophy professor who's very heartsy, very in touch with his feelings. And, and he told me that he regularly goes through psalms. He used them for meditation and prayer. And at the moment... Uh, uh, where I, I read his suggestion, uh, I was in Jerusalem. I felt very inspired, and I, I emailed him, and I said, Look, I'm going to do <clears throat> what you suggest. And I decided to, divide, to uh, take a whole year uh, to devote to the Psalms. And I, I really felt determined. I think part of it was being in Jerusalem, where uh, you know many of the Psalms have special meaning, like Psalm 48, for example. Uh, but I, I thought, What I'll do is read and pray through the Psalms once a week. If you do 20 or 25 chapters a day, you can do that pretty easily. And I did it for the year. And so now I've gone through the Psalms over a hundred times. I know a lot more. In fact, I would even say I think I have a pretty good feel for most of them. I'm eager to share with you some of the things I've learned. I'm a different person than I was when I first unrealistically thought, oh, I'll, you know, I'll learn the Psalms. I'm older now. I'm a little better with feelings, though it's still a weak area in the way I'm wired. But I have devoted myself to the Psalms and studied them uh, intensively. So I come to you as a fellow uh, learner, not not just a teacher. Psalms uh, make it easy for us to recall, if we stop, you know, uh, if we just stop wearing the engineer's hat. Uh, they make it easier for us to remember, easier to recall. In a way, because they're poetry, you know, they're, they have lyrics. They were actually sung. Uh, they repeat themselves. They're self-contained. I'd like to read uh, to you from a, a brand new book on the Psalms. They called it Shir. Shir was expression. Shir was communication. Shir, in Hebrew, means song. Ancient Israel was a people of song. Sheer was not just about exercising your vocal cords, it was about life. To sing was to be alive. To be alive was to sing. Moses well captures this propensity with the words "Then Israel sang the song. It was common for the Israelites to respond to events with music, to interpret life with song. It isn't hard to imagine that after they were delivered from Egypt's army, Israel breaks into singing. Moses leads the chorus. Miriam enters the scene with tambourines and dancing, Exodus 15. It's not surprising that fresh from a victorious military campaign, Deborah and Barak come up with a duet of praise, Judges 5. And to add, think about David's poetic lament for Saul and Jonathan, 2 Samuel 2. Jonah's hymnic prayer while inside the fish, Jonah 2. And Isaiah's visionary song about Israel, Isaiah 5. Surely Israel had a taste for harmonizing life with music, and don't we also? Most everyone in the world sings, in the street, in the shower, in homes, in churches. We sing to celebrate occasions, to memorialize events, to honor those worthy, to reminisce those departed. We sing to success, we sing to failure, we sing from exhilaration, as well as from boredom. We sing to let out steam, or to nurse a broken heart, and even those who are barely, or or, or rarely, or or, or would never sing, manage to whistle or hum, we're like Israel. Yet what makes Israel different from us is the spiritual dimension they bring to their music. Verse sprang from reflection, song from spiritual uh, phenomena. The ancient artisans blended Art and science, time and space, to create musical masterpieces which brilliantly reflect their faith. And as providence would have it, God has given us those songs, biblical texts that engage Israel's musicality and ours, psalms. Remarkably, a whole book of the Old Testament, 150 chapters, has been devoted to song. God knows people. He knows we are musical creatures. That's from the introduction of Into the Psalms, verses for the heart, music for the soul, written by my friend Roland Monge, who lives in Manila, the Philippines. I think that captures it a lot better than I could put it. Well, as we approach Psalms generally, and I'm going to give us some pointers, and then in the second part we're going to be uh, studying Psalm 1. But as as we approach all the Psalms, there, there are several things to keep in mind. First, these are our words to God not just God's words to us. Often, the Bible really does have God's words written to us. Or, there's a certain authority when we read Paul's letters or Peter's, or we're, when we're looking at the law, or, or hearing the, the prophetic messages of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But Psalms are prayer and song, and they're people's words to God. So that's something to keep in mind. You know, the Bible has a lot of things in it that that we feel uncomfortable about. For example, most of the book of Job are the opinions of Job's three friends. And at the end of Job, they're rebuked because they missed the main point. We have the words of the devil in the Bible. In other words, there are many words in Scripture that are inspired, that is, they serve the function of of helping us spiritually uh, and conveying God's message but it doesn't mean that everything that was said was right or even said in the right way and sometimes psalms are like that our words to God not God's words to us although of course it is God's word to us let me return to Roland uh words here it's been said that singing is the highest expression of music perceived as the most direct expression of the emotions of the soul if this is true, then Psalms is the most personal of the books of the Bible. Composing the Psalms, and composing the Psalms, the Psalmists bared their deepest sentiments and their most profound convictions. In reading the Psalms, we recognize things deep within ourselves. So you see what's going on? It's a kind of a spiritual journey, and these writers are bearing their souls. And what they say is not always pretty. Our words to God, and we listen in to their prayers, their songs, and we learn. Uh, Second, Psalms is, like all Hebrew poetry, based on thought rhyme, not sound rhyme. That's probably the main mark of poetry in English that children learn. It has to rhyme. If it doesn't rhyme, they don't like it. But Hebrew rarely rhymes, but thought rhyme is what's there. There'll be the first line, and then the second line will repeat the first line, or expand upon it. And Sometimes there'll be three lines, but normally there's a couplet. Let me give you an example. And we'll be there soon enough. In Psalm 1, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the first line. Second line, and on his light he meditates. On his law he meditates day and night. So his delights in the law of the Lord. And then the second line expands that. How is it his delight? Well, he meditates on it day and night, and that's the way it is. Actually, I uh, a couple of years ago I decided to memorize Psalm one in Hebrew, uh, in the original language. There's there's very little rhyme in there. So we've got to understand the The nature of Hebrew poetry there typically will be two lines and the second one expands on the first okay third history and geography are vital uh, Let me give you a few examples uh, what i 'm saying is that to appreciate the psalms, you need to know your Bible you need to know your old testament otherwise you 'll end up skipping over the ones that aren 't so familiar uh, i 'll give you uh, let 's take psalm one thirty three It's a short one. It's a psalm on unity, very clearly. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing Life forevermore. Well, it may strike you as a bit odd. What's this about oil being poured over the guy's clothes? I mean, normally if I spill something on my clothes, I say, excuse me, and I get up and try to clean up. Well, If we are familiar with Exodus and the ritual of the anointing of the high priest, and Aaron was priest, he was the high priest, then... The imagery is not wasted on us. The oil uh, is on the top of the body. On the head, it runs down on the beard because men were bearded. That was the rule. And from there, it goes onto the collar of his robe. So it's going from the top of his head to the beard to the collar. It's going down. And then there's another image here. It said it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Well, Hermon is in the far north. It's a long way from Jerusalem, a long way from Zion. And so the dew of Hermon wouldn't probably be falling on Zion. The the, the water would have to move pretty much horizontally for it to do that. But the passage is about unity. And not just not fighting with each other or liking each other, but unity in Israel. The north and the south, as you know, were divided. They were divided in the time of Saul and and the time of David. They came together. But after the time of Solomon, they split apart again in in Rehoboam, in Jeroboam's time, in the 900s. And it was a struggle. The struggle is ancient. It goes back to the Book of Judges. Even in Joshua you can see. In Genesis you can see the rivalry among the 12 tribes. So this idea of keeping the north and south together, keeping the nation together, brothers dwelling in unity, is more about Israel and Judah, that is all of the nation, than it is about people getting on in your local church, though that's a valid application. So, I'm not rejecting what you might consider to be the practical application. Okay, how does this relate to my small group or my family? Of course it does, but the starting place is not there. We don't start with the practicals. We start trying to understand the passage in context, and then we apply it. And history and geography are important. Uh, psalm 136 talks about creation and redemption and there are many specific references to Old Testament history and if you've not read the earlier books of the Old Testament you just won't get it a number of the psalms recount Israel's history for us or psalm 137 oh, the sad one you know how can we sing the songs of Zion while we're in a captive land they they, they took their harps and they hung them up on the poplars they just couldn't sing they were too too sad. Well, they're in Babylon. And you say, well, what's Babylon? Well, Babylon is where the Jews were in exile. This is the central event of the Old Testament. They're warned that they don't keep the law. They'll lose their land. They'll lose their temple. Everything will be destroyed. They'll be deported. They'll be in captivity. And they're in captivity. And that's that's the time where they rethink their faith, and much of the scripture is written, and then they come back. The exile is a central event. And there's no hope of understanding Psalm 137 or Psalm 126 or many others without some knowledge of the history. Uh, fourthly, every Psalm has a theme. Now they're the big themes that run through uh, the Psalter. Uh, themes like temple, worship, uh, monarchy, exile, law, God, creation, history, covenant. Every Psalm has a theme. It may have more than one. It also has a context. And many of them are written out of the experience of the pain associated with the exile. So to really benefit from the psalm, we need to figure out what the theme is. We can't just read the psalm until we find a verse we like. What? That's not the way to read the psalms. We read the entire psalm and try to figure out what is being said or prayed or sung. What's it all about? And sometimes that means the verses we've pulled out, our favorite verses, don't mean what we thought they meant. But every psalm has a theme. We must respect that. Uh, Fifth, psalms do not offer solutions to all of our problems. I mean, they, they help us, but it's not so much a book of solutions, a diagnostic manual, as it is therapy. When we're having a lousy day, or we're suffering in relationship problems, or Maybe we're just struck by how short life is, or how quickly it's going by. We're driven to the Psalms. And one more uh, thought. Christians are supposed to use the Psalms. In Ephesians 5, Paul said that we should be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think that's a familiar passage. He's talking about the Psalms. And the only difference would be that that by this time, the Psalms were no longer sung to to stringed instruments. They were uh, back in David's day. But they still had the songs, and they're still musical. And there's a parallel passage to Ephesians 5. That's in Colossians 3. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You You need to get on with each other. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, how will it dwell in us richly? He says, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness. And so Paul expects that we're going to be singing psalms. I think he's referring to the actual psalms of the Old Testament. Well, I hope these uh, pointers will be helpful as you study all the psalms. That we're, although it's God's word to us, in the psalms it's more, God's, it's more our words to God. The the directionality changes. The the characteristic of Hebrew poetry is thought rhyme, not sound rhyme. Old Testament history and geography are absolutely essential. Every psalm has a theme. We we need to figure out what it is. They don't offer solutions to all of our problems so much as they offer therapy. And uh, we are expected to use the psalms. Now, in the last part of this podcast, I want us to zero in on Psalm 1. This is the introduction to all the Psalms. It's short, it's clear, not hard to follow. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit In its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As we read this majestic psalm, it's only six verses long, we see immediately there are two ways, two paths, like the broad and narrow road of Matthew 7. There's the way of the righteous, there's the way of the wicked, and we need to stay away from the way of the wicked. There are only two, not three. And the psalm is calling us to be wise, not to walk in the counsel of the wicked, but to be wise, not to associate with bad company, which will corrupt our character, but to be informed by God's Word, to be saturated in it, to live that way. Psalm 1 is one of the wisdom psalms. That's what they're called. There are many of them that fall into that category, like Psalm 14 or Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is interesting. Each stanza uh, contains a proverb. But the wisdom songs are a bit different from uh, the typical prayers that we find in the psalms, also called the Psalter. But this is a wisdom psalm. And the idea is that if we spend time in the psalms, we'll become wise. We'll meditate on the law. That's verse 2, the Torah. And then verse 3 has an allusion to the prophets. Verse 3 talks about the leaf not withering and bearing fruit in season. Well, that's an allusion to Jeremiah 17. It's as though he's saying when we spend time in the psalms, as we meditate on God's law and prophets, as we put all of his scripture into our hearts, we will be wise and we'll walk with the wise. The wise person doesn't listen to the world. This is a little bit like 1 John 2. The wise person doesn't get his advice from scoffers, from those who don't appreciate spiritual things. So it the psalm illuminates this point. Who we listen to is so important. Withering is the opposite of prospering. Withering here is, well, it's, a, it's like a plant, withering. A drooping, you know, feeling just dry. And, and I don't want to be that way. I think we all wither, or we all get dry at times. But be careful. Being firmly planted in God's word, we can thrive, we can be vital. And the Hebrew idea of thriving, of prosperity, is not the health and wealth gospel. It's not tons of money and in all kinds of uh, honor. It's more crops. Your crops are doing well. You've got children and grandchildren. Your basic needs are met. You have respect in the community. That's the idea of prosperity. And those who don't live like this, oh, there are consequences. Um, one thing that's interesting is that the wicked are lightweights. Now, what do I mean by that? Do you notice that in the judgment, it says they would be blown away? Yeah, I know, maybe you're thinking of Psalm 68. It talks about God blowing away the wicked. We're not talking about necessarily uh, the judgment day at the end of time, though I I think that, that that's true as well. But the wicked won't stand. They're blown away like chaff. So in the process of sifting wheat and chaff, uh, at the threshing floor, the wheat is thrown up, the wind blows away the chaff, because the chaff is like dust, it's so light, and what has real solidity and what's desirable, what you keep, is the wheat, and that falls to the ground. So the wicked are light, they're like dust in the wind. They're just blown away. Uh, wicked people, they, they act like they're so cool and they're so together, but they they could never stand in the judgment. They're lightweights. They, they're not rooted Uh, They're all over the place. I hope that makes sense. They lack solidity. They're consequences. For the wicked, punishment is a natural result of their waywardness. There's nothing uh, arbitrary or artificial about their punishment. They live this way, and that's what happens. It's the natural consequence. We need to teach that to our children. And the righteous, the same way. Prosperity in the psalm is not so much a reward, though it is, Prosperity is just what happens when you live God's way. Things go well. There's the image of the tree in life, the tree of life that, that points back to Genesis. or um, maybe like Psalm 128 verse 3, the, the idea of the, of the olive tree bearing fruit, It's beautiful image. Olive trees can bear fruit for centuries. Maybe you've been to the Garden of Gethsemane. And although the original trees were all chopped down, olive trees are amazing because even if the main trunk dies, they still send up shoots and they bear fruit. Usually they bear fruit every other year, but they'll do it for centuries and centuries. They're solid. They're prospering. That's the way we need to be. That's the way I want to be. Now you can go further because this psalm, in a way, is illustrated even more in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 talks about the world that's out of control, that's rejected God's sovereignty in their lives and have taken a stand against the Holy One. Or Psalm 25. And Psalm 25 is pretty much a commentary on Psalm 1. But this is appropriately at the head of the Psalter, the collection of the Psalms. What should we pray about as we read Psalm 25? Well, I pray to be captivated, by God's word and God's wisdom, not to be impressed by the cool people of the world, not to be taken in by their ideas. I pray to have a life that's solid and stable and productive, not withering, not all over the place, but rooted, anchored, producing. God expects that. I pray for courage to accept that there are only two paths, not to be double-minded or wishy-washy and try to please everyone, But understand, there's no true neutrality. There's God's way and then there's everything else. I pray to go forward in confidence. So what kinds of questions should we ask ourselves? I would ask myself, reading and meditating on Psalm 1, how rooted am I? How productive am I? Have I really come to terms with the fact that it's just that clear, that the road is that narrow, and that God is that good? And do I meditate on the Word of God daily? And this will lead us directly to our next lesson. We'll take Psalm 1, verse 2 as a springboard. His delights in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. Many of the Psalms are centered on God's Word. In the next lesson, we're going to study a number of them. But let me close out, returning just one more time to Filipino brother Roland Monhe. The introduction of his new book continues And so, with all their truth and reality, the Psalms come down through the centuries to offer themselves to be read, understood, and appreciated. May these ancient songs, just as they have done for ages, resonate in us. Verses for the heart, music for the soul.